Welcome to last week's episode plus one. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Elixir Sips. Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. In two short screencasts each week, between 5 and 15 minutes, Elixir Sips currently consists of over 16 hours of densely packed videos in more than 100 episodes, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert Rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11. Elixir Sips. Learn Elixir with a pro. Find out more at elixirsips.com. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Let's face it, there are a lot of things about being an entrepreneur that we all hate. One of the things that I really hate is bookkeeping. Less Accounting has just started a new service where you can get your bookkeeping done for a really low cost each month. If you're interested, go to freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping to go check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Reuven Lerner, and we also have a special guest, Rob Walling. Hey, guys. Rob, please introduce yourself to the folks out there who possibly have not heard of you. Sure. I'm co-host of a podcast called Startups for the Rest of Us that talks about self-funding or bootstrapping small software projects. And I run MicroConf with uh, my co-host, Mike Tabor. And let's see, my most recent project is Drip, which is email marketing and marketing automation. And that's a SaaS app that we launched about, uh, we've been working on it for about two and a half years, and we launched it about a year and a half ago. Wow, it's been that long? (laughs) I didn't realize. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Stuff goes fast. Yeah, it goes quickly. So, I mean, I have, there's a bunch of other stuff I work on, but that's kind of the high level. Um, I guess I'm, I'm an advocate for bootstrapping, you know, for self-funding. And I'm a developer myself, been writing code for 15 years, a lot less over the past two or three as I've kind of ramped up businesses. But that's where I come from, which obviously is, is a lot of the folks that, you know, who are listening to your show. So I guess just to start the ball rolling here, Trip is for email marketing. Like, how did you get into email marketing? How, how, how was that? Like, how did that become the focus of what you wanted to spend enormous amounts of time on? To be honest, I, you know, coming up as a, as a software developer and having a bunch of small little software projects and products making thousand, two thousand bucks a month each uh, allowed me to quit my job and quit consulting around 2008. And one of the things that I learned to utilize during that time, I learned to do some SEO, I learned to do some AdWords, and I learned to do email marketing. And I realized email marketing had a substantial impact on on sales because you can build a relationship with folks, you can follow up with them, you can remind them to do annual upgrades, you can, you know, even with one-time apps that I had back then, it made a difference to my bottom line. And it, it occurred to me in, I think it was, two, it was either 2009 or 2010, I did a talk at Business of Software. It was one of my first 
big talks. I was nervous as hell, but I talked about the power of email marketing and how really more software companies should be using it because at the time, no one there you there weren't all these opt-in boxes. There weren't the the mini courses. There wasn't all the email talk you hear today was non-existent. And so I actually got mixed real really mixed reviews at that conference because some people said, boy, this guy's really off the rails. Emails for spammers. You know, I kept hearing that. Only only the big spammers send email. And I kind of kept plugging away and doing my own thing. And every app that I launched, I eventually use email marketing to get bigger returns to just outsize my returns. And uh, that's really what led me to coming up with the idea for Drip back in 2012, I think it was, and to, and to kind of exploring it and validate that market. <laughs> Spinning off of that, of, of a comment you made about people associating email marketing with spam, what do you say to people now to refute that? Yeah, the, you know, it's funny. We did, uh, we had a booth at the Microsoft Build Conference a couple weeks ago, which is a developer-heavy conference. And developers specifically tend to think of email as a bad thing, email being spam. Um, if you talk to folks in most other areas of the company, they don't necessarily think that. Uh, or non-technical users, sometimes they, they link it with spam. But developers specifically think of it as, as a a lower form of communication. And so what I found was interesting is we would we would say, hey, we're drip, you know, we're like email marketing and marketing automation. And a few people said, oh, so are you the guys that send the spam? And my response was, no, we're actually the guys who make it so you have to send less email because our emails are more targeted. And it's like the better you get at email marketing, the less it becomes marketing and the more it just becomes sending people what they want to hear when they want to hear it. And I think that's the key is it's not having a list of 10,000 people and blasting out a big broadcast to everybody. It's segmenting your list into ideally 10,000 individual lists and everyone getting exactly the email that they want to hear when they want to hear it. So that's, that's what I'm striving towards. Like that's my ultimate goal is to make the internet a better place by making email better. What are the lower forms of communication? Like that you said that they consider email a lower form of communication mm-hmm. compared to what? Like their website or something? Yeah, I guess they consider it a I, mass email. Maybe I should say that. They consider mass okay. email like just a, a spammy marketing thing. When you say, hey, you know, we're an email marketing company, a lot of developers think, oh, so like, you know, when Verizon and, and United Airlines and Groupon and whoever else is sending out these big blasts that I'm getting all the time, they're such a pain in the ass. They're not thinking about the individual contact, you know, if you and I emailing together, I would look forward to receiving an email from one of you guys, right? It's, it's such a different bar. And so that's where personally, having marketed all my products via email over the years, I try to shoot for that latter bar of, I want you to look forward to any email you get from me or any of my products rather than think, oh man, here's a big mass blast someone sent out that's totally irrelevant to me. I must admit, I mean, I'm sort of new to the whole email marketing thing and new to having a newsletter, and I'm not as good as I should be by any stretch of the imagination. But I was convinced that people would sign up for my newsletter and then send me hate mail saying, oh my God, I can't believe you're sending me this stuff. How did I ever get on this? And on the contrary, it's been such a a flattering, pleasant surprise. I send mail out and I get responses from people. They're like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And I really feel like it's a conversation and it's shocking to me because I really, I've been very, very pleasantly surprised to see how people take to it if they've self-selected. 
Yeah, email is a unique form of communication in that respect. Because if you have an RSS feed and you have 20,000 folks reading it, they are reading it, consuming it almost like a newspaper, right? It's a very, it feels like mass media when you're reading it in, in you know, Google Reader, rest in peace. Emails, not like that, right? Because when you get it in your inbox, if you are doing a good job and as the the person sending the emails even if they are bulk emails if the from name is you and the reply to is your email address and you write it like the person on the other end is a person and you say hi so and so you know hi jonathan here's this thing this week that i'm interested in and you know here's something i have to share i hope you enjoy that feel free to reply if you have any questions or comments you know, Rob. I mean, that's kind of how I do my, like, traditionally, if I'm going to write an email and put it in my newsletter, I will crank up Gmail, I will compose a new window, and I will put one person's address in there, whether it's a friend, you know, a friend of mine or, or Eric Davis or whoever, and I will type that email as if I'm typing it to them, then I copy and paste that, put it into Drip, or it used to, I used to use MailChimp, because that's how I like to be communicated with. I think that's how most people like to be communicated with, right? It's like an individual basis. Um, and you may have to tweak one or two things once you copy it into a uh, more of a broadcast form. But I think that's a helpful paradigm if you haven't thought about it before. Email marketing and these newsletters are not, it's not the fixed width newsletter looking thing that you get from a big company. I think it's changing. I think that if you're going to do it right, that you're you're thinking about it in that respect. Do you think that it's only a small company thing? Do you think that big companies are inherently unable to take advantage of this in the same way? Yeah, that's. I think that's an advantage that we have as a small company. You know, it's like you look at kind of using a big company's weight or size against them. This is a really good way to do it because I haven't, I can't think of a big company who does this well. There may be examples. Maybe I could see like 37 Signals doing it well, but they're not even that big on the global scheme of things, you know? They, I mean, if, if we're talking like enterprise, like Fortune 500 or 1000, if someone, if anyone has seen an example of them like doing this well, I would love to see it just to have it as a counter example to tout. But overall, the big company stuff I get is not great. You know who has done it reasonably well? Although they're not big either. There's like Hipmunk, you know, they're a YC company and then they, they do the airfare stuff. I mean, they're an airline uh, ticket seller. They do a good job because they have humor, you know, and mail, actually MailChimp does it pretty well and they're pretty damn big. Like they know email marketing, you know, and when you get an email from them, it's good stuff. But yeah, I haven't seen many like $100 million companies. I haven't seen any that I can think of $100 million companies aside from MailChimp who have the personal voice. So speaking of MailChimp, I've used Campaign Monitor in the past. I've used MailChimp and I migrated to Drip. And I know the difference. There's a significant difference between those services. But the listeners who might only be familiar with one of the other ones probably don't get what we're talking about exactly, how uh, Drip allows you to not be that way, not be that bulk email broadcast person. Could you kind of in a nutshell explain to people just so they are, so we're all on the same page and they understand like what the features are and how they're different from things they might be familiar with? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I should start by saying I'm not, like I like to help people get better at anything they're doing to help their startup or their business. And I am not like a product shill. Like if someone wants to use MailChimp over Drip, there's good, some good reasons to do that. But I built Drip because of the need to be able to communicate more directly with people, like I said. And the, the biggest difference between Drip and MailChimp or, or any MailChimp, AWeb, or Constant Contact, they all operate on this concept of a list. And you, you have multiple lists in your account, and then you put people in those lists. And pretty much you don't get a single view of a customer, right? You have, if same email address is on three or four different lists, you can send them the same email three or four different times. 
you can't really customize the emails based on what they've done or who they are. You basically just send out kind of a static email newsletter. There is a tiny bit of automation they've built into it, but in general, that's the paradigm that we've lived under for the past 15 or 20 years. Drip, which is marketing automation, and there are other tools that do this similarly. Drip allows you to basically say, you don't have lists, your account is one big list. So if you have one email address, that is a person. It equals a person. And if they're a part of like five or six different lists or different campaigns, they're just attached to that person. It makes a lot more sense when you think about it. And then you can add tags based on what people have done. And then when you go to send a broadcast or an autoresponder sequence, you can send that only to the people who have expressed an interest in that topic. So if someone has clicked on links about SEO or AdWords or PHP or Node in the past, they might be tagged with that as an interest. And when you go to send your next thing that's about Node, you don't send it to everybody. You just send it to the people who are tagged with Node. And even a further example, if someone has already signed up for a trial of your product or they already are a customer, you tag them as a customer. So the next time I send an email to everybody in the footer, I can say, hey, if you know, I literally have liquid tags in the email. If person is not a customer, then put this line that says, hey, sign up for a free trial. Else, you know, you're already a customer. Would you like to refer someone? So you can actually have logic in there. So you're, it's going from one to many to one to few, ultimately one to one communication, which is where I think email's going. Was that a reasonable explanation? Because as a new user, you might even have a better way to explain it because I'm so mired in it, you know, after two and a half years. I, I no, mean, that was good. I, I will tell you, I mean, I've, I've used Aweber a bit over the last year and a half, I guess. And I've been migrating over to Drip. And this was one of the things, the whole multiple lists versus, like, like multiple separate lists versus one global view. It, it totally confused me when I was starting on Aweber. I had no yep. idea why these people were on separate lists and why I couldn't look at a view of them. And, um, at a certain point, I guess, you know, over a year or so, I said, well, I guess that's just the way it is. And so that's actually been a nice thing in Drip that I can get, I can see what people subscribe to and not. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So yeah. I had the same experience when I started with MailChimp. I was like, I actually contacted support. I was like, where's the master list? And they're like, there isn't one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's the, that's a legacy of, you know, the email marketing starting in the late nineties. And that's just how you thought about it then was you had these, it was newsletter management is really what email marketing started as. And so now you have a legacy database as developers. We understand this, right? They send, I think <laughs> yeah. MailChimp now sends 600 million emails a day, I think. Oh, and God. you can't, you can't refactor that. Like, that's just too big, you know? So that's where they, they're not able to, I think they're just not able to get the master view. And so when marketing automation started coming out around, I think it started coming around 2005 to 2007, they rethought this paradigm. And I think it's helpful. I have another question that is sort of comparative, and you actually touched on it briefly earlier, which is uh, one of the features of a lot of these things is a really fairly robust WYSIWYG template editing environment where you can pick different templates and you know like three column template one column template hero image template you know all these different things and it seems like drip is it pushes you to be like no just type a regular email and can you so i'm like my background is very very mobile focused mm -hmm. so can you talk about the benefits i assume you think it's a benefit to just stick mm -hmm. with a more of a plain text style uh, the benefits of that in general and also in the context of mobile. Yeah, for sure. So I'll start by saying you can, if you wanted to import uh, an exotic template, you totally can into Drip. But you're right. By default, we try to encourage folks to use 
a more plain text version. Um, it's obviously not true plain text. It's HTML that looks like plain text. But the, and the idea is to keep it more personal. In, in my testing and in other tests that I've seen, the more personal email templates tend to resonate more if you want to build a relationship over time. Now, there are exceptions to this. I think that Groupon and a lot of e-commerce sites do better with uh, the fancier, nicer looking things. I think if you're catering to a non-technical audience and more of a female audience, like my wife as an example, really likes the fancy email templates that she gets as long as they're, but they have to be really nice, you know. But in general, overall, the more personal email templates tend to connect with people more and it builds a relationship. In terms of mobile, like you said, we spent a ton of time testing, trying to figure out the best way to make something look gorgeous on both mobile and in, in you know, web-based Gmail and in Outlook and in all these things. And frankly, it is pretty dang hard to do that with an exotic template. Somewhere you're going to sacrifice it. You know, you're going to sacrifice the either the usability or the visibility or whatever. Gmail on the iPhone, as an example, is now auto-expanding text if you put certain tags and certain queries and media queries and such. And it just makes it look nice for you. But you really can't do that if you have a more exotic template. And so if you want a, a kind of a responsive, for lack of a better term, kind of responsive on all email clients and to have it look good, we found that this thing is a no-brainer, you know, to just have more of a plain text look. And I put a lot of images in my emails. I don't think that you can't have a header and a footer. I mean, there, there's ways to make it nice without cluttering it up. I think as soon as you've gone to a two-column format that you've probably lost because I, you're, you're separating your call to action. You're making people read into columns. You're just not used to doing that in email. It's kind of not well set up for that. I think it also depends on the relationship too. If it's like an e-commerce store, a lot of that is, you know, mostly it's transactional and both parties know like you're doing transactions. You know, you might love the company who makes your shoes or whatever, but you're there for the shoes um, versus a lot of stuff like I do and, you know, consultants will do is it's, it's a relationship building, it's education. And so when, when that's the purpose of your emails, having it very easy to read, having it clean, you know, that kind of caters to that primary benefit. Yeah. I think there's also something to be said for, trying to remove excuses for people to get started. And, you know, obviously now that I have an email marketing app, I hear a lot of reasons why people never get it started. I don't have the time. I don't have this. I don't have that. And one one of the reasons, if you log into MailChimp or AWeber or whatever, is you can get stuck trying to figure out which template to use, trying to perfect your template, trying to design one from scratch. All those things are reasons not to get started. And if you just get started and you maybe want to use a fancy template down the line, then that's fine. But, you know, it really removes one more, one more reason not to just start plugging away and actually get the text in the email, which is really at the end of the day, what has the most impact. Yeah. I've actually seen some people use plain text, like not the, HTML mm -hmm. version, but actually just real plain text. Um, and yep. these are even like marketing emails and they work, you know, either the audience or it's like they just don't care about the template that's not important to them and their audience. Yep. I used to send mine as all plain text through MailChimp, actually. Now, you lose a few things there. You can't track opens because you don't have the pixel and you can't track clicks because unless you want your URLs to look all janky. So that's why in Drip, we don't. Originally, I told, you know, Derek and I are co-founders of Drip and I told him, you know, let just build it plain text and we got two days into it and he's like you realize we're going to lose all of our marketing data and i was like oh yeah everybody's want you know we we need that so that's where we decided to make a html email that looks essentially like plain text it's prettied up and it has the responsive media queries and stuff but beyond that it really does just look like a like you're typing plain text 
So speaking of the different types of businesses, you know, Eric mentioned, you know, if you're buying sneakers, it makes sense to have big, gorgeous product images in there because that's what you're interested in if you're interested in sneakers. But for people who are selling professional services like freelancers, solo consultants, maybe boutique agencies, are there other best practices that you can share? You probably have a million of them, but ones that we haven't touched on already for those specific categories? Yeah. For professional services, email marketing and specifically some lightweight marketing automation is super powerful. We're working on some case studies of how to do this, but the basic best practice is to get a form on every page of your website or as many as you are comfortable with. You know, you may not want it on your contact form as an example, but get a little email capture form everywhere. And even if you build a tiny, tiny list, you don't need many people listening to you and, and kind of thinking that you're an expert in this, in this space to land enough gigs to keep you busy for a long time. Um, you don't have to build a 10,000 person list. You can build a, I've seen 100 person lists with some of these, these firms. And if they're educating them and they're pinging them, uh, regularly, it can lead to, you can get a ten twenty thousand dollars project overnight, you know, if you suddenly don't have any work. And that that's really the power of it. So the, the first thing is like get started and get an email capture form up there. Beyond that, one thing that, that Drip does well is autoresponders. And you can set this up with, in MailChimp as well. It's a little, little more complicated. But basically just get an autoresponder. It's just a sequence of emails. It's like a, a campaign of emails that you send over time and get a couple of those written that go out every week or you're blogging about Node, and it's something that you think might be relevant to clients, then when someone clicks through to that link, tag them that they clicked through. And you know when it, when it comes time, oh, I, and I guess the last thing is, there's something called lead scoring, which helps you see who's engaging the most with your content. And right there, if you, let's say you only have 100 people on your list, there's going to be like 10 of them who are engaging most with your emails. And those are the ones that you can totally touch base one-on-one if you do start to run out of work. You know, if your pipeline gets thin, you can send a broadcast to all of those guys. You can touch base one-on-one and just be like, hey, I want to let you know, see you've been reading my emails. I have an opening, you know, availability next week to write some code. Are you interested in getting started? So that's kind of the basic thing is to get some basic tagging in and some basic emails out to people just to start building that relationship. And like you said, there's, there's more beyond that. Right there, I have to say, I don't think I ever would have thought of trying that. And perhaps that's like incredibly naive of me, but I've now got, I don't know, like close to 300 people on my mailing list. So it's not huge, but you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, a number. And I guess it never even occurred to me to write to the list and say, Hey, I have availability. Try to hire me. I guess, right. you, know, <laughs> you know, I figure, well, I'll just keep writing. And if people are interested, they'll buy my products. They'll come ask me for things. Is that a classic mistake to make where like, you sort of lead them to where you want them to go, but then you don't actually do the final ask. Yeah, that is a classic mistake, is not asking for the sale. And you don't have to do it in a way that's that's cheesy. Do what feels good to you. You know, my my personal thing when I'm writing copy, whether it's in an email or on a website, is I, I will never say anything there that I wouldn't say face-to-face with someone, like at a conference or in a meeting if I was trying to sell, you know, my services to someone. And so you don't even have to ask it like a, a sleazeball and have, have the big JavaScript timer counting down. I'm only available for this, but you don't have to do that. You're going to say, hey, I see you've been, re-, you know, again, email them like you would a person. Open up Gmail and imagine you're emailing a past client. What would you say in that email? It'd be two or three sentences, right? And it'd say, mm-hmm. hey, I happen to have some availability. Blah, blah. I mean, that's all it takes. Eric, you know, just messaged us here in Skype. He said uh, that he won a $5,000 project with a 100-person list and bare-bones emails. This is not uncommon and there are there are people you know 
doing more than that with lists, like you said, that are two and 300, it's not hard to make this work. Depending on how busy I am, either every month or so, I'll send out an email. I just pulled it up. It's like, um, hey, I have some availability coming up in whatever month it is. If you need help with, you know, whatever the service I do, um, reply, let's talk. And that's really all the email is. And I set it up in the early part when people subscribe. I say, hey, I don't have a lot of availability to work with people, but I will email you occasionally when I do. If you are interested at that time, you know, respond. And so I actually set the expectation that I'm going to tell you when I'm available and then I actually deliver on it. You know, like I said, it might be once a month. It might be once a quarter. And that's all it is. What you've done, Eric, is a, is probably a textbook case of how people can think about getting started. So if if you haven't gone through Eric's autoresponder sequence, I'm going to wreck all your metrics here, but you should go to LittleStream, <laughs> littlestreamsoftware.com and you should sign up for his list and see how he nurtures. It sounds, it's very much Eric's voice. It's very personal. I've been through his sequence and he's right. He pings, he hits you up every once in a while when he has some availability and it feels very natural. It does not feel like anything that makes you feel um, icky or salesy. Yeah, and actually just last night I redid it. I uh, was testing a bunch of stuff and I'm actually going to extend it out instead of being like, you're on it for five days, seven days, and then you just get these occasional messages. I'm going to, I'm copying it from a friend of mine, Kurt. I'm basically going to make it about a year's worth of content of like, you know, my target market. Here's what they want to learn about and do a very long-term nurturing um, just yep. because I've seen the value in it. And literally like I wrote these emails three or four years ago, probably took me about a week to write them all. And they just been sitting there running. I don't, I haven't done anything. I haven't optimized anything. And like I said, as I won one project directly, like I was like, how'd this person find me? Oh, they replied to a drip email. And, you know, it's probably gonna be a 10K or 15K project because it's going to be a repeat customer. But, you know, I know a lot of people who get on my email or I can see like, hey, this person looks like that's the lead I just contacted and I can see them going through the system. So it's like, you know, it works and it, you don't need a lot to get it set up or going. Yeah, that's that's the thing I like that you did, Eric, early on is you you just got going, right? You put the form on and you wrote an email or two and they weren't very long and you, you just had to get it out there and you start building the list. Once people get on the list, you start getting some replies. It, it's motivation to do a few more. You don't have to sit down and write a year's worth of content to start with. You know, you, like you started with five days or seven days. And um, the nice part is it is a flywheel. Because I have courses like you that I've written, I wrote years ago and I may tweak them every once in a while if something changes but other than that i don't have to pay attention to them well what about i mean i guess that's sort of a two-part question one is how often should you engage with your list and the other is then how long should those messages be because i'll tell you like i keep hoping to do it once a week or once every two weeks it's probably closer mm-hmm. once every like three weeks or so but when i send something out it tends to be really long and like involved and and people respond to it very well but I feel like I'm just doing way too much. Like, <laughs> I could write mm-hmm. once a week if I were writing a thousand words. But if I'm going to write 5,000 words for crying out loud, of course it's not going to be every week. I think as long as you set the expectation, I don't think there's a right and wrong answer to that. If you look at Patrick McKenzie's list, his, or, or not his list, but his style, his emails, I think, are like five or 6,000 words. And that's, what he, <laughs> that's how he does it, you know. My emails tend to be pretty short. And that's kind of my style. I will sometimes even write a short email and then link out to a blog post with more info. Other times I'll include the entire thing in the email, but it might only be four or 500 words. 
Um, I don't think any of us has time to really do it every week religiously. And I think that's where, like, if you go to softwarebyrob.com, and that's my blog, you sign up for the list on the right-hand side, you will get an email every two weeks right now. But it's not because I'm writing them. It's I wrote them, you know, a year <laughs> or two ago, and they're in this this sequence that follows it. If you don't have time to do it, you, you know, totally can make it work that other way. So I, anyways, but I tend to tell people it's, it's about expectations, right? I tend to tell them, I'm going to be in touch with you every two to three weeks is what I say early on, just to set the expectation. So if you, if you are once a month or once every three to four weeks, just say that early on and let mm. folks know. In all honesty, I think the optimal way would be to do either once a week or twice a week. I see people doing, uh, James Clear is building a, a very nice list and he mails every Monday and every Thursday like clockwork. And he writes really long posts and he's growing his list very quickly. But that's his whole business. That's what he does, right? That's his whole income stream and stuff. And his content's awesome, but he spends time to do that. Whereas you or I, like I'm running Drip, and so to write a post on Software by Rob, or I'm sorry, an email through Software by Rob list, takes time away from that. So I'm not able to do it twice a week. And my guess is that you are not either because you're busy writing code. So you have to kind of do the best you can do and set the expectation as best you can. Well, let me just ask you about that then, because you said that he's, you know, this guy, James Clear, who I just heard his name <laughs> earlier today, so clearly I have to look into it if it's twice in one day. You say sure. that he's writing twice a week, and he's growing his list really rapidly. Is there a correlation <laughs> between writing frequently and growing your list? And how does that happen? Like, is it from people passing the note along? Well, sure. I mean, I think that it's like anything. If you put out a podcast every two weeks versus every week versus every month, you're just going to get to more people's ears if you do it every week. And it, it means that you're putting out good material that people are going to tweet about, that people are going to talk about. Because I think he probably republishes these on his blog as well. And then that yeah. gets people to, to tweet about them and get on the social stuff. And it's just a, you have a bigger footprint. You have a larger look surface area. Okay. I would love to touch on, you've mentioned twice now the correlation, or not the correlation, but the connection between the email and a blog post. Mm. And I would love some personal advice on this because I feel like I want to send my list personal premium content first. I want them to have first access to expertise or cutting edge research that I'm doing. And I feel like it makes it less special if it's also on my blog. But when I started doing that, people started emailing me back and being like, where can I link to this? Because I want mm -hmm. to share it. And yep. I felt like saying, well, for the email, but that's not the way they want to share it. They want to share it on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I sort of followed Nick DeSabato's lead where at the bottom, he's got a permalink for the email, right. uh, which in fact links... I I don't remember what service he uses. It might be, it doesn't matter, but it's that sort of self-published MailChimp style, just generic page. It's not his blog. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of three things going on there. There's the don't make it available as a link immediately. There's the make it available on your blog as a, a link immediately and just like have a link to the actual email online. That is interesting. So here's my thought. I have Geez, how many email newsletters do I have? I probably have like seven or eight across all the products. And now I have more than that, including MicroConf. But so I have a bunch of lists that I manage and I do it different ways with each of those. And I'm trying to think of why I do that. I guess so you your relationship with your your blog readers or your email newsletter subscribers is that you want to give them premium content. So one way you could do it is to email it to set the expectation early on that they will receive basically the first access to the cutting edge research and that you could either send the email out with the info 
and then publish it on the blog a week or two later. So you, it's just a delayed thing. Or you could even publish a private, if you, I'm assuming you're using WordPress or something like that, you could have a category on WordPress that's kind of, you, you know, it's like your email newsletter category, and you hide that from your main feed and you hide it in the categories list. But it's still publicly accessible if you have the URL, right? So it's public I do but this not with visible. It's public but not visible, exactly. So it's it could potentially be discoverable in Google and that kind of stuff, but it's not like when people hit the blog, it's right there in the main feed. So that mm -hmm. could be another way to kind of, and, and to tell people that, look, you're getting access to this and here's a link to it if you want to share it, that type of thing. So that's a way I to like keep that. it more that's exclusive. A, that's a great answer. Yep. I like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And so with Drip, we have, uh, you know, if you go to getdrip.com and visit most pages except the homepage, you can sign up for our seven-day marketing automation course. And after that, you're going to get an email every week. What those emails are is a quick snippet and then a link to a blog post for the full info because those blog posts are really long and I don't like to put it all in the email. That is the way we do it there and it seems to work for us. We get a lot of click-throughs and we then we get people sharing because we have the Twitter and the Facebook and the you know whatever else LinkedIn buttons on it. But it isn't the exclusivity that you're looking for, you know? So I think I don't think there's a right and wrong answer here. Um I think it's trying to figure out what feels right to you. Right. I've done the exclusivity on mine. Like I have a freelancing list where it's for freelancers and consultants. And just this week, I did like the 81st week for an autoresponder. So it's like Jeez. over a year of content. And I, I did that at original. I was like, I'm going to make stuff exclusive. Like it was actually just stuff that was only for my list. I never published it anywhere else. And I got, or I still do. I get a lot of people asking like, Hey, what's the URL for this? I want to share it with a friend. And I'm like, you know, uh, for the email or I can send yep. you a draft. And what I'm doing now is I'm going back through and actually taking all those emails and putting them on my blog. And then I'm going to yep. set up permalinks later. I think like you, you might have to check it, but I, I think, you know, the exclusivity, maybe not make it the content, but make it like, it's called like a content upgrade. Like one, my pick's going to be on content marketing. It's a post I found. So that's the email and that's what's on your blog. But if you're on the email, maybe you can give a PDF and have a, a link for the newsletter people to get a PDF or even something I do with my other list is you can in like the PS be like, Hey, I'm writing a new post on, we'll say some Android stuff that's coming out. Click here and I'll, I'll give you that stuff before it's even published anywhere else. And then you can do tagging and send a special broadcast just to that segment. But yeah, I think worrying about like exclusivity, like publishing the newsletter a week ahead of time and then on the blog, like that might not be worth the effort to maintain that. It might actually like some people want to share it outside. Yeah. I think missing out on the social shares is, is not a good thing. I have traditionally with my, my personal blog as well, the Software by Rob blog, I have tried to keep everything super exclusive and not publish both. And I have re about six months ago, I realized this is not the right approach. And I'm slowly trying to pivot to one of the approaches that we're talking about here, where it's, it is exclusive, but it's kind of a, uh, uh, maybe an exclusivity window or it's something to that effect, you know, because keeping that content hidden in your mailing list really keeps it out of Google. It keeps it out of the social shares and, and there's a lot of value in that. Have you considered making it available web-wise via Drip? I have. I mean, you know, we have the per, kind of the permalinks to the emails. It's like a, you know, if you if you actually go into the email editor in the upper right, there's like a, I forget what we call it, but it's just a permalink in essence. I guess I could link to that from somewhere, but it's like my blog is what gets indexed. My blog is what has the, the social share buttons on it. Like that's the place where I think it kind of belongs if it belongs anywhere. Well, and also Drip. I know just your service alone does a lot of magic stuff where, you know, they've come to the blog, they visited other pages. So you, you want them on your property. You don't want them on, you know, the drip permalink. Yeah, that's, that's right. True. 
it's not because you can't get the information out of it. In addition, a lot of if it's truly the email, I mean, I have so many customizations to these emails now with, an, like I said, a liquid if statement in it that if you look at the permalink, it can get kind of weird because it's like, what do you spit out in that permalink, you know, because you don't mm-hmm. know their information. You don't know if they're tagged with this or that when they visit it. So it's one other thing. It's come up a couple times that Eric and Rob both have content that's like years old. Do you have any advice about authoring stuff in a way that will make it evergreen? Yeah, I mean, I just, I think about that when I'm writing, and then folks let me know. I mean, I typically will get a reply as something starts to get older, like, hey, the interface changed, you know, in this, because I have screencasts that I've done, and that's probably not the best way to do it, I, in retrospect, because I have a lot of screencasts that are just getting getting along in the tooth. So I think I would stick more towards um, text works really well, because you can easily update it. Screencasts are a pain to update. I think any time I have to re-record audio or video or recreate a PDF, if I, the odds of me actually having that original source material is is kind of tough. So I don't have yeah. a better advice than that, I don't think. Yeah, and like I said, I just, like just last night, I, I redid my stuff. I had, you know, seven-day courses, and so in a lot of those, it's, it was sent, you know, one day after the other day. And so I actually had references of, like, yesterday you learned about X. Tomorrow you're going to learn about X. And I changed it to be weekly, so, like, I had to go through and strip all that out. And it was a pain, but it was just it's just text format, so it wasn't really that hard and I think I, I haven't done it because I just, I don't have the time, but I'm going to go back through my big list and actually like, you know, review it, figure out like, okay, this is now age or, you know, this call to action doesn't make sense. I'm going to change it around. But the nice thing is I have, you know, over a year's worth of metrics and I can see like, okay, no one's opening this email. So I'm going to try to optimize the subject line a little bit better. And so it kind of gives me a, an opportunity to go back and kind of make my work a bit better. Yeah, I think I should probably have a calendar reminder about every six months to go through and reread kind of my old autoresponder emails. One year at the most. I think you just need to reread because A, you get better at this stuff. And so I'll go back and read emails I wrote a year or two ago and be like, what was I thinking here? Fundamental, <laughs> you know, classic beginner mistake and update that. Or you'll click through a link and it's a 404 now. And so, you, you know, you update that. And I think it, it does need some refreshing, but it's definitely not an intensive ongoing effort. One thing, um, we've had him on the show, but Michael Port, he's like a, he helps consultants. Um, I liked his emails because I think at the bottom, like not the PS, but like at the very bottom where like it says, like, you know, unsubscribe or all that. He has something along the lines of like, you know, if you find a typo in this email, they're my gift to you, but please let me know if you find it. And so he nice. kind of made it funny of like, if there's a mistake, but he also was kind of asking for you to, you know, help him out with it. Yeah, that's cool. I get a lot of, I won't say a lot. As soon as one of my links is a 404, I'm going to hear about it within a few days. You know, that's typically how it is. And then I can go out and, and fix it. And when stuff starts getting old, if your list is engaged, they will let you know. Now, maybe it's just me, but it seems like to some degree, it's almost a chicken and egg problem with you know, email marketing, where the more people you have on your list, the more these metrics can really inform you. But you need the metrics in order to build your list. I don't think you do need the metrics to build your list. I think you just need to get started and get a form up there. And you need a bit of traffic. That's about it. I mean, the metrics don't make sense when you have 100 people on your list. It's pretty, you know, because if, if two more people click, that like rocks your world, right? <laughs> and and that's not, what do you call it? It's like not statistically significant when you only have 100 people. You need to get bigger before you can do split testing reliably or before the metrics should really matter. I think before then it should be, 
when you have that few people, the advantage you have over someone with a 100,000 person list is that you can engage every one of them individually if you needed to. And so I think early on encouraging like, hey, re reply back, let's get in a conversation, like really encouraging participation. That's the unique advantage that I would do in my list if your list was really small. And then as it grows, you might have to pull some of those out because you just get too many replies. But that's a good problem to have. Yeah, you just have to have different metrics. When I, when I was an Aweber, um, I just haven't ported the script, but when I was an Aweber, I had a command line script that would basically increment a custom field and it would basically say like, this subscriber replied to one of my emails. And so I focused almost all my effort to get replies or if it's actually like a, a sales email, you know, get a sale, but replies were like the one metric I wanted because that was engagement. That was trying to get feedback and kind of getting conversations with people. And so I was actually caring. I didn't care about open rate. I don't, I have very little links. So clicks are almost always zero for my emails, but the reply was what I really cared about. I didn't do it, but I would want to track it by email if I could. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was doing that. And then, you know, especially when you're really small, like I said, like I have, I think like 120, maybe 130 or more now on my client list, like, uh, you know, for my consulting stuff. And I know I got one sale from that. And so like track bigger metrics or ones that actually really affect you. And that's a bit better to do than worrying about like open rates or click rates or stuff like that, especially when small. That's a good question is vanity metrics. Hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I see that a lot on websites. Mm -hmm. And as I get more familiar with the uh, marketing automation, I look at my website more and more and I'm like, this is not that useful. Like the analytics are not that useful because everybody's anonymous. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, I think before you reference the newspaper analogy, it's like, I want to have a conversation and a website's a horrible place to do that. So, you know, I'm a web developer. And so for me to say that is like a major, like an identity, foundational identity shift to say that email is better at something than a website. But it, it seems to clearly be that way. Yeah, the nice part is it's, it's as you said, it's not anonymous. Once you ha when someone subscribed to your list and they get cookied and then every time they click through a link they get cookied again if they're not cookied, you really can start to see what folks are doing. I mean the activity feed in a marketing automation app is pretty cool, you know, and to look, I mean I'm sure you looked at, at the drip activity feed where you can say, hey, so-and-so, this person with this email found me, found my website from this search engine or from this referral link on this date and this time and then at this date they signed up for the list they've received these emails they've clicked these six emails they eventually purchased this ebook by clicking on this email i mean you can on and on and on and that's yeah. where i mean the the non the lack of anonymity is helpful you know it really let gives me, you a uh, picture sorry let me i just have to decreepify that for the audience <laughs> which is that sounds creepy or it can sound creepy to people that they're being watched. But the flip side of it is it allows you to not send spam because you can put in the effort to look at the behavior and say, hey, I know this person is interested in these things. They've already bought this ebook. I'm not going to bug them with that. I'm going to let them know about some different opportunity that there's probably they're 100% ready for. And th that has been a real revelation for me because I used to be that guy that, you know, at Microsoft Build that was just like, oh, you're a spammer? Great. And uh, I have gone 180 on that completely when I started to see, you know, tools like Drip and, and you can actually send, I mean, you're sending personal email, they're personalized emails. So that's kind of like the polar opposite of spam. Well, it, it, I, I must say before I started using email marketing in any way, 
I, I was always confused by a few things. Like one was, I mean, mostly, I guess, just the weird URLs that were in these emails that I was getting. Like, you know, why, if I were to hover over the email, or if I were to click, you know, copy the link, was it not just going directly to the site, but it was this bizarro long thing. And now, of course, it's so incredibly obvious, right? This is the way that the tracking is done. It all goes through the, the marketing engine. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it can be a little creepy, but it is really useful. And it's not only useful, I think it's useful not only for the company marketing, but as Jonathan said, for the person who's getting the email, you're less likely to get broad messages as a result. That said, I do think some of it is perhaps just necessarily hidden from people. Like they don't know until they do it themselves what's going on. But I don't think there's any way to avoid that. I think that's a really good point to bring up, the differentiator of how it is actually better. Um you know, than than getting broad emails for ebooks you've already purchased, which I get all the all the time. I, and I'm like, they're not using marketing automation. Um, but back to vanity metrics, you know, there. I think with websites, most of them, a lot of metrics are vanity metrics, kind of like you know, unique visits or whatever. It's like, what does that matter if the quality of the traffic isn't there? I think that with email, I mean, you could say that like opens or clicks are vanity metrics, but I've found that opens help tell you. If your subject lines are good, I think you could overexploit that and write ridiculous subject lines to get everybody to open, you know, and 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 kind of abuse it. But if you stay within the realm of sanity, then open rates help you figure out, you know, if your uh, subject lines are good, and then click rates help you figure out if your email is being read and if your call to action is reasonable, you know, if you're getting folks to kind of click through and do something. And so I don't think either of those are vanity because they are actionable for you, right? Vanity metric, the definition of vanity metric is it's a metric that sounds good, but it has no corresponding action to it if it's low or if it's high. And so while opens and clicks could be considered that, I don't think they are because of the reasons I've just said. And then the other metric we look at a lot, which is one of the reasons I originally built Drip is because it is goals, like it's actual conversion tracking. It's like, hey, they actually bought something from me. Right, that the conversion certainly is not a vanity metric, and that is is something I always had a tough time wi- wiring up to an individual person, you know, based on uh, Google Analytics, and that's one of the reasons that I like marketing automation for that purpose is to is to be able to identify who bought and and kind of why what led them to purchase. I think a big thing is to really like figure out what you're using the metric for. Like, if you're bragging about your list size or the open percentages you're getting to someone else in a different industry, different market, like that's kind of vanity and a bad thing. But if you're looking at it and you're seeing like you're getting 40% open rates on average on every email, but this one's getting 10%, that gives you data to, oh, that email's not doing as good as my other stuff. Why is that? I think if you use it that way and kind of compare it against yourself or your previous um, results or experiences, I think that's a good way to use them. Yep, I agree. And we've seen, you know, I've had some emails where, I'll accidentally make a something that gets caught in a spam filter, and you'll just see that the the open rates are substantially lower. And it could just be something as simple as that. It's not even that the subject's not good; it's just not even getting to the inbox. And so I'll go in and try to scan through and see if I made a dumb mistake. You gotta stop writing about Cialis, dude. Seriously, that's <laughs> <laughs> all my all my Viagra emails are up low right. open rate. So I have a another selfish question, if you don't mind. Sure. I have a maybe. 13, 14, 1500 person list in MailChimp. And it's been gathered over time. And my career has pivoted a couple of times through that. It sounds like you've had a similar situation. What I would like to do is move those addresses into Drip 
and then do something to segment them based on their interests. So some of them are going to be more interested in web development. Some are going to be more interested in desktop software development. Some are going to be more interested in coaching and in building their uh, software business. And I, I want to be sending relevant emails to the right people. So what is the approach? Do I send out like, you know, a sort of a Linkorama email with three different categories of stuff and kind of tag people based on the links that they click on and then and then I'm good? Or what would you do? How long has it been since you've emailed the list? Uh, don't ask. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been well, at least six months, but I've been in touch with many people. Not, obviously not 1,500, but mm-hmm. they're warmer than you might think. Okay. So I've had to deal with this exact scenario twice in the past four or five months. And the way I handled it, one the example was my book, Start Small, Stay Small. I had a list of folks who had bought it, and I really hadn't done a good job of keeping in touch. And so it's a similar thing where it had been a long time. I didn't have to segment them, so I'll talk about that separately. But what I would do in your shoes is send an email to the entire list and say, Gen, you know, write it like a human. Like, open. I, here's what I do. I'd open Gmail and I would type a subject line of, "Hey, sorry, I haven't been in touch recently," and then, or whatever comes out naturally to you, you know. And then write the email and be like, "Look, I know that you signed up for this, and I haven't emailed you recently. Just wanted to touch base, let you know I'm going to start sending more frequently. If you would prefer not to hear from me, click this link and unsubscribe. You'll never hear from me again. No hard feelings." but I may cry myself to sleep tonight. Uh, if you want to add the, <laughs> add the humor, <laughs> I, I was like adding touches at that. And then say, you know, I've realized that you may have signed up to hear about one thing and don't want to hear about others. So, you know, here's a couple of, of options. Click any of these links, you know, to kind of pick your track, I guess. And you figure out how you want to state that in the email. If you don't choose any of the above, figure out a default. You know, just say, if you don't choose any of the above, then I'll just continue sending blah, blah, blah. But again, if you don't want to hear from me, click an unsubscribe link. Thanks for being on my list. You know, I mean, that's generally what I would do. And then each of those those links is, a, like you said, just a tag. And now you have these folks categorized. My guess is if you have 1,500, you're probably going to get three or 400 that actually click. You're going to yeah. get, you know, a, a couple, a hundred or 200 that are going to bounce if it's that old, you know, if the list is getting older. And then you're going to get a bunch that, you know, maybe 100 that unsubscribe. And then you're going to have a bunch that just kind of go into the default thing. And you could decide. You can decide if you wanted to opt them in or opt them out, right? You could just say, if you don't click anything, I'm just going to stop sending. That's up to you if, if you feel like it. I have not run in. You would think that opting folks in automatically would get a bunch of people pissed off or whatever, but it's not. They already signed up to hear from you. They're not right. going to be bad, you know, so... I would. I think you're on the right track, and I would just keep it super casual and let them decide for themselves. Yeah, I mean, your overall advice is, it sounds so obvious when you say it. It's like write an email like a human talking to humans and yeah. don't overthink it. It works. I mean, they, they signed up to hear from you. They want to hear from you, and they're not going to be upset if you email them. <laughs> you know? <It's>, yeah. <laughs> That's actually exactly what I did. I had to, I basically closed off one of the services I was providing, and then I split my main list because it was, you know, that one became, was like freelancing consulting advice, but I had like clients in there and it felt weird. And mm-hmm. so I basically sent an email, you know, three options like, Hey, if you're interested in this old service, I quit it. I'm not doing it. You probably want to unsubscribe. You could follow me if you want to stalk me. I don't care. Uh, the second one was like, Hey, are you going to be a client of mine type thing? Click this. I got a new newsletter has a lot more value for you over here. And then the third option is if you still want to stay on this list and get advice about freelancing, just stay here. And I can actually track where people come through. And so I would, I would see 
I mean, maybe even eight months down the road, some people who were for the option one that I killed off, they would unsubscribe. Like they were getting a bunch of content that wasn't valuable to them and they didn't get mad at me. They didn't yell at me. They just unsubscribed on their own later on when they realized, oh, he's really not focusing on that anymore. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that is very helpful. I think probably there's a, a fair number of people out there who do have lists, but as they've let it go cold. So that's, that's probably very helpful. And that's a way that you, I mean, we all let lists go cold, right? I mean, I, I've done it with a few, with a handful. And you can email that list and try to rekindle that. You know, you just got to be nice about it and apologetic and let folks know what they originally signed up for and let them opt out really easily if they don't want to. One thing I would say is if your list is sizable, if it's several thousand, and it it depends on how cold you get, but I mean, if it's been a year, you're going to get a lot of balances out of that, and that's not good. So there are some services I could recommend. There's one called NeverBounce, neverbounce.com, where you can just push your list into it, and then it'll spit back only the good email addresses. And that'll keep you from getting banned, because MailChimp... Uh, pretty much every provider is gonna, they're gonna block your account if you send to 3,000 people and you get 300 bounces. Like, that's way too mm. high. It, cause yeah, it negatively impacts their IPs. Yeah. So, yeah, Mandrel will do it. Yeah, any of those things. So, never bounce is something I, they're not cheap, but if it's a one-time thing for you, you know, I forget, you might pay $20 or something or 30 bucks to kind of have them scan through a couple thousand person list. Mm. So, we haven't talked at all about lead magnet type stuff. Is that uh, a dirty word for you or is that, uh, no. do you think that's a good thing? Yeah, I, I mean, I use the term opt-in reward, but yeah, either way, I, I like lead magnets. I mean, it, the, the concept is you're giving, you're offering something to someone in exchange for signing up for your list. Have and, you seen patterns of stuff that works really well for people, or does it just depend on yeah. what kind of? <clears throat> no, I think the patterns that I've seen are, so I like the idea of, of a five-day or a seven-day email mini course, like a crash course. You can see examples of this. Go to hittail.com. We have one there. You go to getdrip.com. The reason I like them is because it gets your subscribers used to hearing from you on a recurring basis. It, used, it gets them used to opening emails. And then at the end, when you say, hey, you've gotten some great stuff, I'm going to keep emailing you every week unless you know you want to opt out here. That's a little different than if you, you have a, like a tool. I, I like tools and tips sheets. You, know, you can do a, a one-page PDF that they can download. But if they download that and then you say, hey, I'm going to continue to get in touch with you, it feels a little more forced and you haven't gotten them used to getting multiple touches from you. But I do know that having like a, a top 10 tools for doing X, like a nice PDF that you put together, has a really high opt-in rate. I just don't know about the longevity rate versus, you know, a, more of a mini course thing. Yeah, I've done a lot of the, I mean, Clay Collins kind of, I don't know if he came up with the idea, but he popularized it. Um, and I basically followed his pattern exactly. And I was talking a couple of days ago, one of my, it's like the top three server hosts I recommend the clients. And it was like a 58% opt-in rate on a pretty large number. It wasn't like a low volume page, but yeah, like it, I, I'm sending him to a list where it's not really a good fit, but I can see like, cause it's, you're only touching them once and you're not doing like a, you know, once every seven days or a couple of weeks. And one problem I found, and this was most, is more my fault because of integration. I would see a lot of people opt in, get the PDF and never double opt in or never even do anything and just unsubscribe. So they just wanted the PDF. They didn't want my emails. And that was kind of like a wasted effort and kind of boosted the metrics of some of those without it actually being the results that I really wanted. That makes sense. 
The other thing that I, I'll a lot of times see some of these PDFs that I'm really interested in, I download them and I have a big, huge folder of them that I've never read. That's the other thing I was yeah. going to say. I do the same thing. And if you get a big PDF or an ebook or whatever, people don't read that on the spot. So they archive it and they never get to it. Whereas if you're sending them emails, oh. they have a little more likely, you know, because your emails, you, instead of sending them a big PDF, you send them five small emails. And yeah, they, you do, yeah, you tend to scan through them. You're on your phone, you're waiting in line. Hey, I'm going to read Eric's emails, blah, blah, blah. You're, I think there's more higher likelihood that it, someone's going to catch a little more of your content. I don't have, I don't have metrics on that, but it's kind of my gut feeling. And I'm, I'm all in on the email mini courses. I do like the tools. I, you know, the tools list, but I think there are potentially some, some drawbacks to it as well. Yeah, splitting is really good. I've, I have some of them I know, like they're going to send me eight emails. So I actually will wait till I get all eight and eat, read them all at once. So it's like a PDF for me, but it's really nice because then, you know, I can archive it if like there's no actionable things in this one, but oh, lesson four, I actually had a really good item. I'm going to put that in a folder to work on later, or stuff like that. Um, and you could even do both. I mean, it's not hard to throw up, you know, the PDF on one thing and then have your, you know, split into six emails on another and just see what works for you and your audience too. All right. Any other uh, questions for now, guys? I feel like I could keep going all day, but I, I but, this, but it's it, we're, the lemon has been squeezed very well. <laughs> Tons of great information. Yeah, and this has definitely inspired me to get back to writing, and then also tinkering with all the automation stuff that I, quite frankly, haven't even touched. I know it's there, and I know it's magical and amazing, and but so far I've just been dealing with like lists and autoresponders, which by themselves are pretty amazing to me. I mean. It's sort of like what you guys were saying before, that I'm amazed that this text that I wrote, I guess, a year ago, year and a half ago, continues to get subscribers and people continue to respond to it, which is it's fantastic. Like, that's kind of one thing to really end on is no matter what size of list you have, like, it's not emails you have. You actually have connections with people or potential connections. And I think if you have 10 people on your list, 100, 10,000, doing stuff that helps them and, like, builds a relationship with them, I think that's the most important thing to do. And, you know, the tactics, the technology, that doesn't really matter so much as you're connecting with these individuals. And it could even be like you just email people, you have an address book and you just send, you know, an email individually to each person every every week or so. You know, but I think focusing on the relationship and focusing on what can I do to make the relationship better is really a kind of a guiding principle you should have. 